um, when I was here, we talked about Christ and the role that he fulfilled as high priest. High priest is, was talked about in the Old Testament and then Jesus fulfilled that role in the New Testament. And today we're gonna to talk about something very similar. We're gonna talk about Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. The, the principle, the concept of a kinsman redeemer was laid down in the Old Testament. And, uh, and we're gonna look at that. We're gonna look and see just what was a kinsman redeemer. And then we're gonna see how Christ fulfilled that same role in the New Testament on our behalf. So let's pray. Father, as we open up your scriptures today, I give you thanks. I thank you, first of all, for the privilege that we have to be here where we can open up your word, we can study, we can praise, we can worship you in a public forum and not have to worry about persecution. And there are so many places in our world where persecution happens every day for this very thing. So I give you thanks, God. I pray that you'll give us understanding of your scriptures and make it real in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we all know that right from the very beginning of human history, mankind has fallen. And the separation between us and God is the result of sin. And because of that, God knew right from the beginning that he was going to have to provide a way to redeem us back to himself. It's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something we have the power or the authority to affect. Only God can bring redemption. And God started on that plan right from the beginning. We see from early on in scripture that God begins to paint a portrait of what our Redeemer is going to look like. Throughout all of Scripture, God wants his people back. He wants to bring his people back to him. And that's what redemption is all about. So he sent Christ to be our Redeemer way before we were ever born, before we were ever understood that we would come into being. God provided for our redemption. He provided for our salvation. For us to get to the point in our lives where we know that we need a redeemer, sometimes some of us have to go through some really hard times. Everyone in his or her life has to get to the point where we recognize our need for redemption, our need for salvation. With some of us, that point comes a little harder than others. I had to go through an awful lot in my life to get to the point where I knew I needed Jesus. For some, maybe the journey wasn't quite so tough. But even in the Old Testament, when we look at the people of Israel, God's people, we see something very similar that God knew all along what it was going to take to get his people back. And it was the people who walked away from God, not the other way around. God, throughout all of Scripture, provides a way to get back to him. And the recipe is usually pretty simple. Honor God's law and obey the Sabbath. Those are the two things that he asked of us. He asked of the people in order to be redeemed back to God. The Sabbath was very, very important to God. And we see that throughout scripture, how important that was to him. For us today, the Sabbath doesn't have the same significance because of Christ. But still, God always provided a way for his people to come back. We read throughout scripture about times when the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, was separated from their God. And it was always because of their choices, not his. And we see things throughout history like we read about wars and famine and murders and idolatry, enormous losses 
for the nation of Israel, and it was always because they separated themselves from their God. But we also read about enormous triumphs and victories in the nation of Israel at a time when they honored God. And so they kind of go back and forth and back and forth throughout all of history. A lot of that has to do with leadership. It has to do with who is king at the time. But even though there were good kings and bad kings, God always wanted his people back. So as I said, he started painting a portrait of our Redeemer early on in Scripture. Let's talk about the very beginning. Let's talk about the garden, when man fell, when sin happened. What did God do to provide covering for Adam and Eve? He killed an animal, right? Now, what did, we don't know what animal that was, but what did that animal do wrong? Anything? Absolutely nothing. God shed innocent blood to cover their sin. And if you just think about that for a minute, shedding innocent blood to cover sins. The plan of salvation started at the beginning. And then all throughout history, let's talk about Jewish history for a little bit, that uh, wandering through the desert part with the tabernacle that we talked about two weeks ago. And later on, when the temple was built in Jerusalem, the sacrifices that happened there were for one reason, to cover sins. And what was the price that had to be paid? The shedding of innocent blood. Those animals didn't do anything wrong. And as best as they could, that animal that was sacrificed for sin had to be perfect. It had to be flawless. It had to be the very best that you had to offer. So the concept of covering sin by shedding innocent blood started at the beginning. And we see God paint this portrait all throughout Scripture. One of the roles that Christ fulfilled is as kinsman redeemer. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about kinsman redeemer. First, let's talk a little bit about what it means to redeem something. And I'll use a couple modern day examples so we can kind of get an understanding of what it means to redeem something. I have a job. I actually do work uh, for a living. But the reason that I work is to buy tools. I love tools, okay? I have a lot of tools. I couldn't do my job without tools. And for those of you who have never tried this, go to a pawn shop sometime. They have so many of the coolest tools. Now, they're a little banged up. Some of them are kind of dirty and scratched up. You can get a really good deal on tools at a pawn shop. Now, the way a pawn shop works, and I have never pawned anything, so I may be off by just a little bit, but if you fall on hard times and you need a little money, you can take something that is valuable and you take it to a pawn shop and you say, okay, you hang on to this for a little while and give me some money. And they give you some money and you go and you do whatever you have to do with that money. And then when times are a little better, you go and you redeem your valuable possession, whatever it was. But in order to redeem that possession, what I don't know, we'll just call it a shotgun or something, um, you know, you go and you take your shotgun down and you say, I need some money. And then when you want to go and get that thing back, it takes two things to be able to redeem it. One, it takes money. You have to have money. You have to have the means to buy it back. And it takes authority. You have to be authorized to do so. And typically, I guess it's a ticket or a receipt of some kind that says, I'm the one who dropped this off, so I'm the one who gets to redeem it back. 
if I did drop off my shotgun and Jordan decided he was gonna go get it, sure, you can bring him some money, but they're not gonna give it to you because he's not authorized to do so. He doesn't have the little ticket that was given when that tool was dropped off. So it takes those two things to be able to redeem back what is mine. Another modern day example is property. If someone owns a piece of land and for some reason they fall on hard times and they're not able to pay their taxes, there is a way, there's a method for someone else to pay those taxes temporarily. You can do this, uh, it happens every year with Jeffco County, you can do it online. You can go and you can pay taxes on somebody else's property and you may not even know that person but you can pay taxes for them. And then every year you have the option to continue to pay those taxes until the property can be redeemed. Whoever owns the land at some point, when things get a little better, times aren't so hard, they can go and they can pay those taxes, you get paid back and they redeem back their land. And that's very similar to the principle that is laid out in scripture. The same thing happens in scripture. There's a way to redeem back what is yours, but it takes authority. You have to be authorized to do so. In this case, you would be the landowner, and it takes means, it takes the money to do so. So that's kind of a, a modern day example of what it's like to redeem something. Now let's look at an Old Testament example. When you read in the Old Testament, and we're gonna be in Exodus um, chapter six, in the Old Testament, the word for redeem is the Hebrew word ga'al, which is spelled G-A-A-L. And ga'al means to act as a kinsman redeemer, to avenge, revenge, or ransom someone or something. So let's go to Exodus chapter 6. One of the first things that we're gonna see about redemption or about being a redeemer is who was the very first one to redeem, and it was God. And we're gonna see that the Lord God promises to redeem the people of Israel from their Egyptian captivity. I'm sure you all remember that. You know, they were held captive for quite some time in Egypt. God sent someone to talk to Pharaoh about letting his people go. And God worked out a number of miracles in order to get to that point, but what it was was the fulfillment of a promise. God promised that the people would be redeemed. So in Exodus chapter six, we're gonna read the first six verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. As God Almighty, <clears throat> sorry, as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with outstretched arm and with great judgments. And we remember what those judgments were. 
They were great judgments against Pharaoh and against the people of Egypt, culminating in the loss of their, the loss of their firstborn. So God fulfilled his promise here to redeem his own people from a foreign land. He was fulfilling a promise he had made earlier, promising them the land of Canaan, what we now know as Palestine or Israel. He promised them that land. They were off in Egypt for some time, and now God says, as I promised before, I'm going to bring you back into that land. God is going to redeem his people back to the land that he gave them originally. So we see God as the first one to talk about redemption, and it refers to his people. Go over to uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. We're still talking about God being a redeemer. And we see here that the prophet Isaiah refers to God as redeemer. So we'll start in uh, the first verse of chapter 43, Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, you are mine. And then just flip over to the next chapter, chapter 44. And we're going to read just a couple of verses, starting with 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So God sets himself up as an example of redemption, and even the prophet Isaiah confirms the fact that God was the redeemer of his people. So at this point, there's no question that God qualifies as a redeemer. He meets the qualifications. He has the authority required to be a redeemer. We find out as we go on in Scripture that man can be a redeemer, and that's ultimately what we're going to see in the life of Christ. So man can be a redeemer. There's a part of the Levitical law that applies directly to redemption. So we're going to go, now we're going to go back to Leviticus, and we want Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25. One of the things that we need to understand about the land that God gave Israel is that he gave it to them for a possession. God gave them the land. And it was important to him that they keep the land. Now when we talked earlier about maybe if you fall on hard times, you can't afford to pay the taxes on your property, well, God understood when these laws were laid down that the same thing can happen back then, that there may be an occasion when someone actually loses their land. And so he lays out a, a pattern, a plan, for redeeming that land back. And the reason is God set aside this area of land for his people. He doesn't want foreigners coming in and owning land. So... When the hard times come and someone has to sell their land, what he wants is he wants the land to be sold to someone within the Hebrew nation. 
a relative of some kind or a neighbor. Don't sell your land to a foreigner. That's what God wants. Don't sell it to a foreigner. Let's keep it within the family, so to speak. And so we see in Leviticus 25, we're going to start in verse 23. And it talks about redemption of the land. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. And remember, this is God speaking. When he uses the word mine there, it has a capital M. That's God's land. So the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what is sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. So we see here that God provides a way for a family member, uses the term a brother, a family member can redeem the land. So that's the first person you go to as a rich uncle or a cousin or a brother or someone that you're related to and say, I need help here. And they can buy the land or lease it temporarily, but eventually it can still be redeemed back. And then just a little farther on in the same chapter, we want to go to verse 47. Now if a sojourner, now this is a foreigner, someone who's not a part of the Hebrew nation. Now if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells with him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, again, the family relationship, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. So you see here the word kin is used kind of like what we say kinfolk, you know, these are my kinfolk. We don't use that here much, but other parts of the country, kinfolk is a very popular term. And so that's exactly what the scripture says, is that your kin can provide redemption. There needs to be a family relationship. Remember, we want to keep the land in the family, so to speak, within the nation of Israel. So if hard times come, yes, you can have a redeemer. Your land can be sold or leased. Sometimes they would lease it to a sharecropper and their portion of the crops would be saved and stored in order to be able to buy back the land. So here we see that man can be a redeemer. We've already established that God can be a redeemer because he redeemed the nation of Israel. And here we can see that man can be a redeemer. And we see kind of an introduction to the concept of God and man becoming redeemer. We're going to see this unfold with Christ, who was both God and man. So it's an introduction to the concept of being a kinsman redeemer. That's our foundation. How to redeem something. To be a redeemer, it takes two things. It takes authority or position, in this case, family. You have to be family. 
And the second thing you need is the means to do so. Can you afford it? Can you pay the price of redemption? Those are the two qualifications. So now we're going to look at a wonderful example of a kinsman redeemer. We're going to read the book of Ruth. Just flip over a few chapters or a couple of books over to the book of Ruth. Um, Now, we're not going to read the whole book of Ruth because Jordan didn't give me that much time. Um, So I'm going to try to give you kind of a synopsis of what happens in the book of Ruth. It's a wonderful story if you haven't read it. It doesn't take that long to go through the whole thing. Read the whole book of Ruth. It's really fun. So um, we're going to talk about this family, excuse me, Elimelech and Naomi, husband and wife. Elimelech and Naomi live in the region of Bethlehem. Does that sound familiar? A kinsman redeemer coming from Bethlehem? Hmm. Um, So Elimelech and Naomi had two sons. The sons' names, I'm going to try really hard. I don't have a very good Hebrew accent. But they are spelled, the sons' names are spelled M-A-H-L-O-N, which I believe is pronounced Mahlon. And the other one is Kilion, Mahlon and Kilion are their two sons. So Limelech and Naomi and their two sons come across some hard times. There's a famine in the land. And usually when there's a famine in the land, there's a reason for it. It's because of something that's going on spiritually in the nation of Israel where God has withdrawn his hand of protection or things just aren't going very well. But there's a famine in the land for whatever reason. Elimelech decides to move his family to Moab. That was not a good idea. I'll tell you right from the beginning. Never should have left. They should have stayed in Bethlehem. But the family decides to move to Moab, probably at the direction of the father. So the father packs up his family and they move to Moab. While they're in Moab, the two sons marry Moabite women. You don't have to study the scripture much to understand that that's not exactly what God has planned. How many times does God say, don't give your daughters to foreign men as wives? Or don't take foreign wives for your sons as brides, right? How many times in scripture does God remind them of that? So we're off to a really bad start here. First of all, that he left his own land and went to a foreign land. He allowed his sons to marry foreign women And one of the more interesting thing about this is that the Moabites are actually an enemy of Israel. They don't get along at all. There's a reason for it, and we'll go into that. I'll tell you about why that happened. But so the family moves to Moab, and their oldest son, Mahlon, marries Ruth. This book is named after her. Kilion marries a Moabite woman named Orpah, Orpah something like that. After being in Moab for only 10 years, we're skipping ahead quite a bit here, we find that within those 10 years that they lived in Moab, the sons not only got married, but they also died. The father dies, Elimelech dies, and the two sons die just in that 10-year period that they're living in Moab. So you see, moving to Moab was a bad idea all the way around. Where is Moab? I think we may find out where Moab is here, Mr. Cannon. He missed his cue, that's all. So we're going to find out where Moab is. 
The family that we're talking about is from Bethlehem, which is just south of Jerusalem. And you can see that this area over here is where the Ammonites live, and this is where the Moabites live. And there's a relationship between these two that we're gonna discuss in a little bit. So here's Moab, and here's Ammon. Ammonites and the Moabites, they're related. So they didn't go very far, but apparently they thought that by going here, they would get far enough away. They've crossed the, the sea here, and they've just moved a little ways over. It's not that far. So they've gone over to Moab because of this famine. At the end of this 10-year period, the famine in Israel had ended, and Naomi decides that she's going to head back to her homeland in Bethlehem, which is a really great idea. So now Naomi has two daughters-in-law that are living with her because the sons are deceased. And the two daughters-in-law decide that they're going to go to Bethlehem with her. But she tries to talk them out of it. Naomi says, no, you should stay here with your own people instead of going with me. Because the way Naomi explains it to her daughters-in-law is, my husband is dead, my sons are dead, if you come with me, what are you going to do? Are you going to wait? You're going to wait long enough for me to find a husband, to have two sons, and then you marry my sons again in order to have children? She said, we, we don't have time for that, essentially. So in doing so, Orpah decided to stay with her own people. And it says that she decided to stay with her own people and her own gods. Because remember, the Moabites don't worship Jehovah. So she decides, after this conversation with Naomi, she decides to stay behind with her own people. Ruth, on the other hand, insists. She says, I'm going with you. Where you go, I go. So let's read. In chapter 1, let's start with verse 14. And this is at the time when they are parting. They're going to separate. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Ruth, or kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. What a devoted, loving daughter she became to Naomi. When she says, I'm willing to leave my own people and my own gods and go with you wherever you go. Now, we have to remember that Ruth was a Moabite. Where did she learn about the love that Jehovah has for his people? She didn't learn it at the Moabite school that she went to, that's for sure. She learned it from her mother-in-law. She learned it from living with a godly woman. So Naomi was a mentor more than anything else. And she taught Ruth the truth about their God. So much so that in the years that they lived together, 
She understood that what her gods had to offer was nothing compared to what Jehovah had to offer for his people. She was willing to leave Moab, to leave her family, her friends, her gods, her entire society, and go to a place that she knew nothing about except what she had learned from Naomi. She was willing to leave everything behind and go with this woman. What a brave and courageous woman she was because one thing that she knew at the time was that she was leaving her homeland and going to a place where she would be considered an enemy. And I'll explain why. But she knew that their people were enemies and she was still willing to go to Bethlehem knowing that she would be she could be ostracized once she got there. In Old Testament terms, this is a picture of what salvation is all about. For us, salvation is accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior, the forgiveness of sins. What Ruth did here is she left her God behind and went to follow the God of Jehovah, or the God of Israel. That's a Old Testament form of salvation. She made a decision to leave hers behind and follow him. So they get on the road and they're headed to Bethlehem. And Ruth knew that she was facing a really difficult life. She was a widow. She was a foreigner. She was a native of a country that was an enemy to Israel. And yet she still chose to go to Bethlehem. Now, at this part, we're, we're going to take a little break. We're going to do what the Old Testament in the original Hebrew calls a rabbit trail. We're going to investigate something. We're going to take a pause, our journey to Bethlehem. We're going to take a little pause, and we're going to talk about Moab. Because I want you to understand why the Moabites and the Israelites didn't get along. And what Ruth was facing as she leaves her home and heads to Bethlehem. Does anybody know the origins of these two nations? I'll tell you. That's okay. You don't have to answer. Let's go back and talk about the story of Lot. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot. God calls Lot's family out of Sodom and Gomorrah just before it gets destroyed. So Lot and his wife and his daughters leave town. Remember what happens to his wife on the way out of town? They're headed this way, and what does she do? Probably, probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah. She looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. Although God called them and their family was going in that direction, her heart was still back here. And God says, okay, fine, Psst. pillar of salt. Well, Lot and his daughters leave the area. And they go, and uh, this is all in Genesis chapter 19, if you want to read it, or in case you don't believe me. Um, Genesis chapter 19. So Lot and his daughters leave, and they go, and they hang out in a cave. And so they're in this cave, and they're aware of what just happened over the hill from them. Their entire community, everyone they know, and everyone they're related to, died. They have no family, no friends, nothing, no BFFs. So they get this crazy idea. I don't know what these girls were thinking. They get this crazy idea. They need to have sons in order to carry on the family name. So they get this crazy idea to get their father drunk. So one night, they get their father drunk on wine. The older daughter sleeps with her father. 
produces a son. The next night, the second daughter does the same thing, has an encounter with her father. Another son comes along. These two daughters, I, I don't want to mess up the names, and so that's why I wrote these down. The older daughter has a son named Moab. Hmm. The second daughter has a son named Ben Ami, A-M-M-I, who was the father of the Ammonites. So you can see here that these two sisters, out of incest, have sons who create these two nations, the kingdom of Moab and the Ammonites came from this incestuous relationship. So you could kind of say they're off to a really bad start right from the beginning. There is no way that something like that can be blessed by God. That is an abomination. And we see this later on. They, the people of, of Ammon and the people of Moab are constantly at odds with Israel. They never get along. But there's an interesting story that I, I won't go into. It's from Isaiah chapter 56. That even these people who God considers an enemy, God provides a way for them to join the assembly. Essentially, salvation, redemption for them. But we won't go into that today. The people of Moab worshipped the god Chemosh or Chemosh. And some of the ceremonies that they had included child sacrifice. You can read about that in First and Second Kings. You may also remember the story about Balak. Balak was the king of Moab, and he hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel. I don't know if you remember that story, but it didn't go very well. The curse didn't work out. So you can see, and these are just a couple of examples about the animosity between the nation of Israel and the people of Moab. They didn't get along at all. God cursed them in Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23, we're just going to read the first few verses. And this is about being excluded from the congregation. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of, the, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And there's some reasons for it, because he did not meet you with bread and water. That's an old story. So even God curses the Ammonites and the Moabites. So we've established on this little rabbit trail that we went off on the relationship between Moab and Israel. It's not a good one. It never was, and it wasn't intended to be. So Ruth is leaving her people, her home, what she's comfortable with, and going to a place where she knows she's going to be considered an enemy. And yet she did it anyway. So now let's go back to our journey now. These two women are headed back to Bethlehem. In the book of Ruth, we read that this all happened at harvest time. So they arrive in Bethlehem, and there are actually people who remember Naomi. And they say, is this Naomi? She's come back to us. And she has brought with her Ruth, her daughter-in-law. 
When they get there, it's harvest time, and Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. You probably remember how that goes. You can go and you can glean in the fields. People who own land and they're, they're full of crops, they have their people go through and you glean the field and you take your crops and what's at the edges or what falls down on the ground is left there for the poor or for widows. For those who don't have land or don't have an income, there's a little bit of what's left behind and it's meant for them. It's kind of like a landowner paying a tithe to the people of his community. And that's what Ruth does. So Ruth goes out into this field, and she ends up in a field owned by Boaz. Boaz ends up being a family member. He ends up being a relative. So during this time that she's out in the field and she's gleaning, she ends up in front of Boaz's servant who is in charge of the field. And she's asking him for permission to glean. And this is in chapter 2. Um, I'll read uh, verse 6 and 7. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, uh, this is when Boaz asks him, Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, this starts in verse 5, whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. I also want to read, let's read, um, we'll pick it up in verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field, this is Boaz speaking to Ruth. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he's welcoming her. Boaz is saying to Ruth, this is my field. I'm giving you permission to reap with my men, not just around the edges and the scraps that are left over, but go with them. And he spoke to the young men and he said, don't touch her. Leave her alone. Boaz barely knows her and he's already protecting her. He's already being a shepherd to her. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and asked him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have for, come for refuge. So here Boaz pronounces a blessing on her. He just met her, and he's already pronouncing a blessing on her. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have confirmed, comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. So there's quite a bit more to the story, but you can see that right away Boaz takes Ruth under his wing. He protects her. He pronounces a blessing on her, 
and he gives her from his own bounty. Just because of her reputation, how she treated Naomi. She ends up going back home, Ruth ends up going back home to Naomi, and the food that she had for dinner, it said there that she ate until she was satisfied and then she kept some behind. In other words, she got a little to-go bag and took it home to Naomi and had dinner for her mother. And her mother asked the question, where were you today? Whose field were you in? Because things turned out really well for her that day. And she said that she was in the field of Boaz. And Naomi reminds her he's a relative. Now, we don't know what the family relationship is, but Boaz was related to Naomi's family. So that makes, her a relative, makes him a relative of Ruth. So that night, Naomi sends her to the threshing floor. And what the threshing floor is, is it's a place. You know, this is a community of, of crops and farmers, and, and there's only so many threshing floors. And so you would take your grain and you would pile it next to the threshing floor, and you essentially had to wait your turn to use the floor. And in doing so, you would stay there with your grain so no one would steal it. And he would actually spend the night there sleeping next to his pile of grain. And what Naomi instructs Ruth to do is to go and lay at his feet, wait till he falls asleep and lay at his feet. And he wakes up and he's startled and he sees this woman at his feet. And she essentially says, if we were to use kind of some modern vernacular, she says, take me under your wing. And he agrees to do so. He is going to be her kinsman redeemer. Because we establish earlier on the principle of a kinsman redeemer is you have to be family, which he was. He was family to Naomi. He was family to Ruth. And he has the means. He's a landowner. He has the means to be her redeemer. And that takes place in an instant on the threshing floor. So Boaz, when he wakes up and he sees her, he says, yes, but there is another relative that is closer to you. We don't know who this other relative is. We don't know what the relationship is. But Boaz says there is another who is closer. And he takes the responsibility of going to this other family member and he says, Ruth needs redemption. Ruth and Naomi are here together and they need redemption. And at first, this other family member agrees to redeem the land but then he says, you must also redeem Ruth and take her as your wife. And he was unable to do that. So I'm assuming, it doesn't say so in scripture, I'm just assuming that he was probably already married. So he could not act as redeemer within the law. So Boaz gets together the elders of the city. He meets them at the gate. They have a little meeting because he needs witnesses in order to comply with the law. And he says, I am going to be Ruth's Redeemer. I'm going to redeem her and Naomi so that they can have their land back, and I'm going to take her as my wife. Now, things are a little different today. That is not a very romantic wedding proposal. He doesn't go to her on one knee with the ring and all that. He just makes an announcement to the elders of the city, I will be her redeemer. And so this whole wonderful story takes place in a very short time, but he recognizes exactly what he needs to do so he goes to the elders of the city and he, and he gets all these things straightened out. And, and as a kinsman redeemer, 
He buys back the land that was originally Elimelech's. That land is restored to Naomi. He takes Ruth as his wife. So two people got redeemed here, not only Ruth, but Naomi. Because remember, Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons. And so by Boaz redeeming Ruth and becoming husband and wife, he redeems Naomi. Because now Naomi has the hope of offspring, which she lost when her two sons died. So we know how the things, how things turn out. Um, they do end up getting married and having children. And one of the fascinating things about this story is that their child's name is Obed. That part's not that fascinating. But um, Obed's son is Jesse. Jesse's son is David, king of Israel. So now we're going to move on to New Testament. So we've seen in our foundation that we built um, that God was the first redeemer of Israel. And then we see how man can be a redeemer, but there are still these qualifications. You must be kinfolk, you must be family, you must be related, and you must have the means or the power to do so, to be a redeemer. So now we're going to look at Christ. Christ fulfills the role of kinsman redeemer. We can see that he does exactly what God did by redeeming his people, acting as God, and he does exactly what Boaz did by providing the needs. He provided a covering. He protected Ruth. He did everything that God would do on a personal level for Ruth and Naomi. So we want to talk about Jesus Christ as kinsman redeemer. Is he qualified, first of all? Let's talk about Christ's qualifications as kinsman redeemer. Is he family? Is he our family? If we personalize this for each one of us, can he be our kinsman redeemer? Are we not joint heirs with Christ? Does he not call us brothers? Does he not call us his bride? Go to the book of Romans. We want uh, Romans chapter 8. We're going to see what the scripture has to say about this. Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to read starting in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So if we suffer with Christ, we are joint heirs. We are his brothers, joint heirs with Christ. Go back to Matthew. We want Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to start reading in verse 47. Then one said to him, speaking to Christ, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak with you. But he, Jesus, answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus Christ acknowledges that we're all family. And, and we already know that he was authorized by God to do what he did. So if you talk about the qualifications for being a kinsman redeemer, first of all, he is kinfolk. He is our kin. He is our family. He is our brother. Does he have the authority to be a kinsman redeemer? I guess I was going to flip to John, but I don't think we really need to. Probably one of the most well-known scripture verses in the New Testament, John 3.16. And we're asking the question, does Christ have the authority to be our redeemer? What did God say? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God sent Christ. So what do we have to do? All we have to do is ask for forgiveness and we get it, right? God sent his son to be our redeemer. Can he pay the price? Can Jesus Christ afford the cost of our redemption? Go all the way back to the beginning. What was the price? What was the price of redemption? The covering of sins. Innocent blood has to be shed. The covering of sin happens by the shedding of innocent blood. Sound familiar? Did someone shed innocent blood? Jesus never sinned. All of the years that he lived on this earth, he never sinned once. A concept I do not get. I don't know how that happened. There is no way. But God can do it. So, is he authorized? His, his authority came directly from God. Can he pay the price? Does he have innocent blood that could be shed? He did so. He, and he did it for us. We read in the book of Hebrews, remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. Uh, you know, the author, which we're still not real clear about who wrote the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is trying to explain to Jews the authenticity of Christ's sacrifice. Remember Jews, they've been studying the scripture all their lives for thousands of years. They've had the law. And then Christ comes along and says, basically, I'm the fulfillment of that law. And they didn't believe him. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified for blasphemy. But let's read, let's just flip over to Hebrews. And we want, we'll start in chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And we want to start in verse 26. This is going to sound a little familiar because two weeks ago we talked about Christ and he fulfilled the role of high priest. Now we're talking about Christ fulfilling the role of kinsman redeemer. Starting in verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all, he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, 
But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. This is one sacrifice that doesn't need a cleansing. Remember, at this time, the temple, at the time Christ was alive, the temple was still being used in Jerusalem, right down the street. They're still doing sacrifices. And I reminded you that the high priest himself had to be cleansed before he could go into the Holy of Holies. And he's saying, now this high priest we have in Christ doesn't need to do that anymore. Flip over just a couple of chapters to chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to read uh, starting in verse 11. But, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. We have been redeemed. Christ redeemed us. Every single one of us needs redemption. We get to the point where we recognize our need for redemption, and then we acknowledge what Christ has done for us. He, being our Redeemer, is a Redeemer forever. So we can be just like Ruth. We can lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus, our kinsman Redeemer. Ruth laid at the feet of her kinsman Redeemer. Our kinsman Redeemer covers us with unending love and mercy, forgiveness that can't be bought. He will provide for us our every need, our every need, and he will cover any shame that we might have. Ruth had a reason to be ashamed. Her shame was covered by her kinsmen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We're almost done here. Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of the New Testament. The story that we studied about Ruth, about Naomi, about Elimelech going to Moab had to happen. It was part of God's plan. Although it seems a little convoluted that you would want to go that far to find a wife for your son, it had to happen. It was part of God's plan. There is nothing in our life that God can't overcome. Even going to a foreign land and getting a wife, and the husband died, so that that woman could be brought back to Bethlehem to meet Boaz. It had to happen. How do we know that? When we read the genealogy of Christ here, we find, this is if I did my math right, that there are roughly 42 generations from Abraham to Christ. 42 generations. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, 
and we want to go to verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. In other words, Boaz and Ruth, their son Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. But let's keep going. And you work your way down to verse, uh, let's see, 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus Christ. Jesus was a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. You see why it had to happen? Now I'm going to use a term that, that is often used in Scripture. I tried to count, you know, Christ was his great, great, it hurt my brain to figure out how many greats there were in there. But Jesus came from the loins of Boaz. Boaz is his father. Now, he's a great, 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 great grandfather, but the scripture uses the term father in this way. Ruth was his mother because he came from the loins of Ruth and Boaz. So you see, this had to happen. All this nonsense over here had to happen to get to this point where one of their grandchildren would become the savior of the world. So we see Boaz, our first picture of a kinsman redeemer, and from his loins comes the great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Okay? That's all I have. Any questions? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that our need for a kinsman redeemer is ongoing. Thank you, God, for what you did. You sent Jesus to redeem us. And if it wasn't for that sacrifice that you made and that he made, we wouldn't be here now. And so we give you thanks, God. Give us the boldness to tell someone else about Christ this week. It's in his name we pray. Amen.